Welcome back to the program. It sometimes seems as if every major cultural, social, and political movement of the modern era is anchored in its own place and its own decade. Paris in the 40s, Hollywood in the 70s, 80s Washington in the Reagan Revolution, the 60s in San Francisco, and the 90s on Wall Street. But for the post-war sensibilities of the late 40s and early 50s, New York was the center of the universe. It, perhaps more than any other place, captured the ethos of the time. It was the time of Mad Men and the Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. It was a time, perhaps the last time, when rules were clear, almost Manichaean, when everyone knew their scripted roles. It was the time when Harry Copeland and Catherine Thomas Hale, the central characters in Mark Helprin's new novel, In Sunlight and Shadows, could still navigate by some fixed stars that would soon fade to black. Mark Helprin is the critically acclaimed author of the previous books Winter's Tale, Freddy and Frederica, The Pacific, Ellis Island, and numerous other works. It is my pleasure to welcome Mark Helprin back to this program to talk about his latest work in Sunlight and in Shadows. Mark Helprin, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. That was a, a great introduction, but can I co- make a few comments? Of course. The, the first one is a, a totally an aside, but uh, it, it just uh, I have to do it. You mentioned uh, Mad Men, mm-hmm. and as it happens, uh, I I grew up uh, in that very the exact milieu. Meaning, I actually was was uh, I lived in Ossining and Scarborough, which is where the, uh, the main character lives. Uh, I went to the school, the school that. That, that in the show was modeled after the school that I went to. It was called actually Scarborough School in Scarborough, New York, which is one town below Ossining. Uh, I knew, uh, and my parents knew, zillions of advertising people because there was a sort of a, a knot of them there, a lot of them in Briarcliff. And later on in the uh, early 60s, when a lot of the show takes place, uh, I had a girlfriend who was the receptionist because she was a model, and they put her out front, uh, she was the receptionist at one of the uh, three leading advertising agencies in the world. Now, I can report to you that that show is not accurate, not even slightly accurate. It's a, it is an imagination, uh, and as so often happens, it distorts and misrepresents uh, what people were really like in the period, starting even with the way they dressed, because uh, people didn't dress like models in a, in a glamour shot. Uh, generally, you would you would you would not even notice that much of a difference were you on the street at the time. This, this, the other thing is the, the treatment of women, the relations between the sexes was not that much different then than it is than it is now. Basically, anyway, there were certain forms that were different. Obviously, w- women had different roles and hadn't come into the workforce and hadn't achieved the equality that they have now. But when it came down to the relations between a man and a woman. Uh, you know that, that hasn't changed that much since since the beginning of time. Uh, certainly, uh, what I experienced was, for instance, my girlfriend n- never ever reported anybody pinching her behind or making it that kind of um, horrible, uh, um, uh, you know, aggressive comments that you, that that is that you see on the on the on the show. The the, the drinking, yeah, the people drank, but not. Not the way that it was represented. I used to ride on the train back and forth, and people would have a cocktail, or whatever. But they weren't all alcoholics, and the, and the families were not oppressed, et cetera, et cetera. I just want to report that I was that that's where I grew up, and I remember it exactly, and it wasn't that way. 
was it though, and and this relates to in sunlight and and in shadow, was it a time that was more? I mean, in much the way Catherine and Harry's relationship is more mannered. Everything was more black and white in that post-war period. Well, uh, I don't know about black and white. I mean, we have a lot of black and white now in terms of things you can do and you and you can't do. Uh, and you know, we have our manners. Uh, some of them are PC. You know, some of them are. I mean, the, every age has its just the way. In every age, people think they've invented sex. Every generation thinks it's invented sex, and the previous generations don't know what sex is because they haven't discovered it. There's an illusion because about what came before. Previous generations, and we also have, by the way, the illusion that previous generations were so much better, like the, the, the myth of the greatest generation. Uh, it wasn't the greatest generation that fought World War II. It was a normal generation. Subsequently, we've had some generations which have been much less, you know, have have, have failed in the, the the bad generations because they didn't do what people did normally. They they they, they we've been uh, too rich, too self-indulgent, uh, too obsessed with 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 ourselves, not responsible enough, and not uh, strong enough, but. But to get to the to the heart of your question, I have to tell you that frequently after after uh, uh, coming out with this book, people have asked the same question and also challenged me in the in the in the same way. They say, "Oh, this was an imagination. You, you really this didn't really happen this way. I mean, people weren't like that. They weren't as heroic. They weren't as uh, as uh, as virtuous, uh, as as good, as loving, etc." And what I tell them is, no, you don't know if, if you weren't there. I mean, if, if you didn't, if you're not that old, and you think that back then, uh, it, actually everything was corrupt, and, and this is just an imagination that I have. It's not true. This is what I remember. And and also, when you mentioned gray and black and white, um, the in terms of of what's right, of doing what's right, and of in terms of loving someone properly not being unfaithful, being devoted, willing to sacrifice, all these things that we call virtues, that's the way it was. Not with everybody, of course. I mean, we had Adolf Hitler, right? right. But, but in general, I remember, and I, I knew a lot of people, uh, all my, uh, my parents and all their friends were, had been through the war. In my own family, we had, we had to rent a ballroom to welcome the people back from the war. That is, those who came back. Not all of them came back. Some were killed. But we had 32 veterans in my immediate family, you know, cousins and such. Uh, and people were, 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 were like the way that I portray them in the book uh, in general. There were villains, and of course, there were bad people, selfish, greedy people, and, but there were very good people who operated by a code that that uh, has since been degraded in the name of uh, relativism or uh, God knows what. And I have to say that I still operate according to that code. Uh, and to me, it's very real, very immediate, and obvious. Talk a little bit about that period of time, because it really was a kind of inflection point, even to the extent that things did operate the way you're saying it was this post-war period, and it was everybody thinking about what's next. Where do we go from here? There was truly that sense yeah. of, of unlimited possibility in many respects, and, and it could have taken Absolutely. many directions. 
Yeah, a- absolutely. You know what I liken it to? I liken it to the roller coaster where you're, 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 you have these ups and downs and then you go up in the highest point and there's, there's a pause. And you're, it's almost as if there's no gravity. And then the rest is up to, you know, which way are you going to go? Uh, here you've come this high. And when I say we've come, we had come this high, this country at that time, right after the war, had conquered a vast portion of the world uh, without having uh, any any casualties at home except for the ships offshore. I mean, I, I, um, I once had a girlfriend who told me that when she was a young girl, she used to watch the explosions and big fireballs offshore. Uh, and she lived in the, in, the, in um, Georgia, in Savannah and Charleston. And she would go to the beach at night, and they they would see the ships blowing up. You know, the, the orange glow, of the the fireballs. But apart from that, we didn't have any casualties at home. We had a quarter of a million uh, in uh, abroad, uh, and there was great suffering. For instance, my 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 sixth grade teacher was a widow. I'll never forget it. You know, her husband had been killed in the war. There were many people whose whose sons, husbands had been killed in the war, brothers, fathers. But but what I, what I wanted to say is that we were we were the leading country in the world economically. I mean, we 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 were so far in a way at, at the top, and we had just come through this war where everyone. Had suffered immensely, even if even if we didn't have attacks on this country. And we looked abroad and we saw what had happened to other people. And our soldiers came home, and what they wanted was was peace, family, uh, uh, you know, love, children, and that's what, unfortunately, stupid people make fun of in the 50s. That's because they never had to fight uh, a world war. They never faced that kind of danger, and 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 they and they never came through it as as we did. After the war, when the when the when the soldiers came home, the whole country wanted to rest, and they want they wanted to turn to uh, family, quiet, and what 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 you referred to before as a sort of a uh, not not mannered, but uh, uh, a, a situation in which. You didn't have uh, uh, bombers destroying cities and people being uh, made into soap, you know. So that's that's what I remember. That's I, I value that time tremendously, and I get get rather disturbed when 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 it's when it's misinterpreted and people make fun of it and say, oh, it was, you know, the boring fifties, the boring fifties. Well, maybe it was boring if you yourself weren't in danger, or if you look back on it and you and you have no sense. Of what people went through and how they suffered and and the danger that we avoided. But Mark, isn't that the point? That because of the intensity of the war experience, that mm-hmm. much of what followed in the fifties was a reaction to that. Everybody had had enough. Exactly what you're saying, and that, yeah. that subsequent generations didn't have that experience, didn't have the intensity of that war experience, and had to find their excitement, their intensity, their cause in different ways. That's that's absolutely true. Um, and the um, a lot of people found it, in, in, so they, they, they imagined it, or, or they... Um, what, what disturbs me is when, when people don't give enough credit to... To uh, other people, I, I find in in life generally, people do two things. One, they really don't think 
of you the way you think. You know, people think that other people are thinking of you all the time, <laughs> and they, they, they get self-conscious. Well, people are usually thinking about themselves, and also they don't credit other people enough. In other words, uh, you get particularly uh, among a certain uh, groups, well, everybody. If you're a, for instance, if you're a, a contractor, and and some uh, and, and, and a lawyer from a big law firm hires you, you think he's a jerk because he can't work with his hands, he's helpless, etc. And so you're the lawyer, you're a professor. You think about the contractor. He's a jerk because he can't do uh, with the law, or he, he can't he can't write a book of scholarship the way I can. People think less of other people. For, for for no good reason, uh, and it's it's a it's a it's a fault. Generations do that too. Um, however, of course, you can you can make uh, absolute comparisons. Uh, it, it, it is possible. Is that human nature in some respects to think that way, to to view other people that way, and and is the object of much that we do and much that we have to deal with ourselves? to try and address those failings of human nature, to try and overcome those inherent ideas? I think that the object for most people is simply to, to keep on competing in the, in the same really silly silly way and elevate themselves above other people, which is really, uh, I mean, it's in some ways it's creative in that it spurs people to make new things, do new things, uh, work hard, etc. But think of all the waste. I mean, you have you, you go around once. I mean, unless you're a Buddhist and you believe in reincarnation, and that's a pretty short time. So why spend it be, trying to to uh, increase your standing relatively among other people who are also going to die? How is it different then for Harry and Catherine in your story? Well, I, I think you can say that it's it's different because I mean, what the book is about really is love uh, mm-hmm. and how love can transcend. All these problems, uh, all of the problems of not only uh, society but uh, but human nature too. I mean, that's that's the whole. What you're left with at the end really is only that, and that's how they're different because they had the, the the courage to act upon that, to be attracted to it in its purest form. Uh, in a sense, they're idealist in that way, and of course, and this is a large part of the book when. When you when you make that choice, um, usually you pay for it. Uh, you're 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 punished. Uh, you you have uh, there are consequences, and it and it can hurt as it did in the book. Yeah, I mean they have they have agency in so much of it, but a lot of it is is preordained. Particularly Harry who takes over his father's business and takes over the problems that come along with that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, when you say preordained, it's uh, that's that brings up another point. I mean the book. The book is, uh, I go to these um, events uh, all over the country. I've been doing it for quite a, a long time to to promote this book. And uh, frequently, people bring up the, uh, the the question of how how did how did they fall in love so hard, so quickly, at, at first sight? And you know what's been lost, really, in, in modern times is the idea of a marriage made in heaven. Uh, when you talk about preordained, there you go. Uh, and I frequently find myself in these in these uh, so-called readings because I don't read. Uh, I actually you know, talk and speak and then mm-hmm. sp- speak with the audience to some extent. Uh, the 
the idea of a marriage made in heaven is a very old idea. I mean, look at Dante and Beatrice. Dante sees Beatrice on the bridge and, you know, wham, for the rest of his life. One sight, bang. Uh, Shakespeare, of course, made the phrase in English, marriage, marriage is made in heaven. Uh, and I think that we, th- we think that we're too much in control of our own, our own fates. Uh, I mean, that's what we seek all the time. Sometimes you have to you have to simply uh, accept for the best things that are given to you as as a gift. I mean, in the, in the founding of the country, we called that providence uh, because people then you know they they died earlier, they suffered more. When, if, if you went on a trip, it wasn't getting into a, a 767 and being like on a track as you fly above the clouds and then land at an airport and it's very safe, etc. Uh, you, you got in a boat in England, and if you were lucky, you got to the other side. Uh, you know, for instance, I think the best example of that that I always think of is when Adams went with his family to France, and they almost didn't make it. Uh, things were, were different in that respect, and people had a better eye, a weather eye, toward what they called providence. I've always had that, uh, maybe because when I was a child, I was, I was born at the beginning of the seventh month and not fully uh, developed physically, and I, ju- I nearly didn't make it many, many times. I had pneumonia 12 times, came very close to death all the time. I, I, I believe in, in, in providence. I don't think that... That uh, that I have control of my of my life, uh, you know. Particularly, uh, there's something beyond that. In looking at that from today's perspective, is is there a certain nostalgia you think to to that notion in a world as you said a few moments ago, where the goal is always to try and control events as much as possible? Uh, yeah, I mean, because ultimately it's more realistic. Uh, it's an illusion that we control things. It really is. And when we think that we do, and when we have the pride to to operate on that assumption without thinking, you know, what you know, what could happen? Uh, is this too much? Is it is it hubris to bite off more than we can chew? Do we think that we can really design our lives to the extent that that that, that it will be foolproof? Um, you you pay for that, uh, and it's 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 a uh, it's something that that uh, is not a good thing. Um, there has to be a better balance between between um, making your best efforts and and doing what you can. You know, uh, God helps those who help themselves, but also understanding that we are mortal uh, and we we essentially are, are rather weak creatures. Uh, and by the way, that just it just strikes me that I, I've been going around. I see maybe it's because of the hotels that I stay in. I don't know. <laughs> But there's this focus on on the body and and on on you know what you look like and and um, your how you dress and all of that uh, nonsense, which is really uh, crazy because you get someone I, I don't care who he is uh, or who she is you, you might be you know an Olympic athlete very handsome uh, with, uh, with 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 tr- in tremendous shape looking good all the time, et cetera, et cetera. They think they're at the top of the world. You know, bang, you have uh, a muscular disc, I mean, multiple sclerosis or cancer or an accident or something like that. And then you're brought down to what is essentially the fundamental human condition, which is that we are we are not uh, supermen. Uh, 
I know all the all, all the places where I where I that I frequent when I'm on these book tours. It's it's like it's sort of like a Nazi uh, ideology, which is which is we all want to be supermen. We all want to be so so uh, healthy and terrific, and let's focus on ourselves. That's kind of silly. Where do you think way. Where do you think in the culture that comes from, in your opinion? That's human nature. Um, that's uh, since the beginning of time. Man has wanted to perfect himself and be a god. I mean, when I was uh, a graduate student at Oxford. Um, uh, Many many years ago, you know, forty years ago, uh, I, my tutor was Hugh Trevor Roper, who was um, mm-hmm. a famous historian, and he's the one. Unfortunately for him, when the Hitler diaries, diaries came out, uh, he said he examined them because he was the expert on on Hitler, and he said, uh, "I stake my reputation on the fact that these are genuine," and they turned out very shortly to have been faked, and then there went his reputation, but. When I got there, he had me. He, I was I, I was studying the uh, Renaissance voyages, and, and the first thing he did in tutorial was give me a bunch of books and say, "Here, study this. What was it? It was Trismegistian mysticism or Hermeticism, which is uh, founded uh, supposedly by Hermes Trismegistus, an Egyptian of ancient lineage. And the whole point of it was that we could be gods, that man." could become a god. There's a theme throughout human history. Uh, it's, in the, it's in the Bible, you know, the, the building the Tower of Babel, etc., etc. It, it, it's never-ending. We think we can transcend our basic mortal condition, but we can't. Now, what that has to do with the book that I wrote about what happened after World War II, a love story between two people, I don't know. But anyway, there we went. <laughs> One of the things that also seems different about this time in 1947, the early 50s, is the lack of a deep sense of, of irony. There somehow was more innocence. Talk a little about that. Oh, yes. I, I myself am always accused of that. And uh, I, I accept that, that, uh, that uh, scarlet letter, the scarlet letter of I, or lack of I, uh, proudly, because I don't like irony. To me, irony is uh, sort of a, a way to uh, mock other people's beliefs uh, by 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 presenting them in in a, in a, uh, in, in, a in a way that invites invidious comparison or or uh, or rejection. And I don't think it's uh, a good idea to go around mocking other people's beliefs. In, 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 sometimes you can, of course. I mean, sometimes it's necessary if the beliefs are terrible, but rather confront them directly, rather than in a, in a sort of a sniveling, uh, snide way, you know, kind of a, a giggling way. Um, I, I prefer to be direct about things and and to to take a chance to commit, you know, to uh, to uh, uh, believe in in certain things, uphold them. Uh, you mentioned being black and white uh, morally. Well, um, not everything is, is, is black and white, but some. But often you have to take a stand, and and then and and simply um, uphold what you believe. Um, that's uh, uh, there was. Uh, it was not a time of um, of irony. Irony also can be. I, I sort of associate it with license. You know, uh, I'll, I'll do whatever I want to do, and everything is relative, and there, I don't have to adhere to any particular standard. And if you do, then 
there's something wrong with you. You're just a jerk. You don't understand that it's uh, it's perfectly fine for me to do whatever I want to do because I can just do it. Uh, that's not what it was like then. And uh, I was, frankly, much more comfortable in, in that kind of situation. I, I always... I always used to say when I was a kid that uh, that there are laws uh, and that you either uh, obey them or you break them. That you have to choose, but you don't want to you don't want to slime around them. You know, if it's it, for instance, when I was uh, growing up, I said, "Well, I understand that I'm supposed to be in school, and I have to attend, and I'll get in trouble if I don't." But I'm a free agent. This is when I was you know, a kid. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, if I don't want to go to school, I won't. And I didn't. I would walk out of the school, get on the train, go to New York, do whatever I wanted to do, and get in terrible trouble, and then I would defend what I did. I would say, when they brought me up in what they called it the executive committee, and this is the school that's, in, that's actually in Mad Men. Right. And, and they would say, you, you just walked out of school on Wednesday, and what did you do? And I would say, well, I went down to, to Manhattan, I went to the museum, of uh, the Metropolitan Museum, and I, and I ate lunch at a, a new thing, had a new thing called pizza. You know, this was new at the time, 25 cents for a pizza and a, and a beverage and, and a little salad at a place called Pizza Burger Pete's. It was an unusual thing, pizza. I had a, a thing called a pizza, and I went to the museum. And they would say, how can you do that? You're supposed to be in school. I said, I, I, I'm a free person. Uh, I chose to do that. And they said, well, you're going you're gonna to have to pay for that. We're going to whatever the punishment was. And I would say, I know that. I accept that. I agreed to the rules, but I also uh, decided to break them. Uh, and you don't have that much these days. What you'd have is people saying, oh, I, I shouldn't have to be in school. Well, I recognize that I did have to be in school. I also recognize that sometimes I would break the law. When you talk to young people, about this period of time that you write about, what do you think is the greatest misconception that they have about it? The, you know what the greatest misconception is? It's just again to refer to uh, Mad Men or to the the uh, I think it's a Richard Ford novel. Um, I forgot the senior moment. Forgot the, the name of it. It was actually a satirical novel about people who think that they. That they, you know, they're going to break away from the terrible conformity of the 50s. The m- basic misconception is what we've been talking about before: that then, whatever the then may be, whether it's the 40s, the 30s, the 19th century, the, whatever it is, that people were somehow uh, unenlightened and stupid, and they hadn't discovered the great things that make us far superior to them. Um, that that they were d- different; they didn't understand. They, they they didn't have the, the proper virtues. They were sort of uh, primitive uh, cavemen or, of, of some sort or other. And that is is a terrible misconception. I'm constantly even with my own children, who who have been brought up and and told this in in the culture that we are now so far superior and people then just didn't know. They were unenlightened. Well, it's it's just it's just silly. I would take. The people that I knew, my father, you know, um, my my uh, relatives, my friends, my teachers, etc., and match them against anybody from any generation. Now, then, it's again not crediting others simply because uh, you it, it is human nature 
you need to feel superior and you don't know them well enough. And in this book, by the way, if I can sort of Please. plug the book, yeah, my, my object was to take you back to that time, uh, I guess through, through my eyes, uh, and I do remember, I remember it's what I remember best and well, so that you would feel as if you were there, that the texture of it would be not only convincing, but make you actually feel as if you're not here, but, but there. So that you, would, that you would love the characters, uh, so that you would feel as if you were in love, and that so you could sort of make the jump from your soul to the soul of another. And in, in, in all literature, this is, this is what happens. It doesn't matter what the time was, what the belief system was. I mean, you can go back to the Greeks or Shakespeare or, or, or Dante or any, anything, really. The, 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 the task of literature is really the universal. Uh, it doesn't matter what the time is, what the culture is. Um, it, 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 human beings have, have certain universal characteristics, uh, courage and uh, bravery, uh, compassion, love, etc. Those exist, have always existed, uh, and in, in, it doesn't matter where you are or what period you're in. And the idea is to be able to, in, in this book anyway, it was to, to, to jump back to that time, which I love deeply, uh, r- really I do, and see and, 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 and sort of land there as if you were on a, um, on a, on a tour. Or take these, you know, these movies where they put electrodes in your brain and you think you're actually there. Well, that's kind of the way I, I, the book was for me. It transported me anyway, and a lot of people who have read it. Mark Helprin, the book is in sunlight and in shadow. Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks a lot, Jeff. And this is not the first time either. It's been every time I come through San Francisco. Thank you. Indeed, thank you. The book again, In Sunlight and Shadows, Mark Helprin. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 